John just wrote a letter that every single sentence was brilliantly commenting on culture, right? And that was clever. That would have been clever enough. We all would have been like, wow, John's super clever. The Bible's inspired. This is incredible. John also got every single sentence of his letter from where? The text. Like, it takes a while for that to sink in. How do you do that? How do you get, how do you like, how are you clever with the newspaper and, and the cool stuff that's happening in current events and you craft this letter, but you actually got all your material from the Bible the whole time because you knew your Bible so well that you did like a whole SNL skit with Bible content. That's crazy. It's almost like he had help. Good morning, Southeast Christian Church. How are you all doing? Mine, you're like, who are you? <laughs> My name is Marty Solomon. I am the president of Impact Campus Ministries, the creator and executive producer of the Bayma podcast. And, ooh. <laughs> and, uh, and good friends of the couches. Uh, we used to... Uh, worked together alongside in northern Idaho and just had a great time uh, having their friendship around and, and I'm excited to be able to spend this weekend here. Um, we've, gone to, we've helped lead tours in Israel together. Um, we scouted Turkey together. I remember dragging Aaron up a mountain that I'd been looking for for 12 years. And we got all the way to the top and couldn't get to the top because they told us to go away. <laughs> he might not have forgiven me for that yet. I also remember my good buddy Aaron always saying, you know, there's one book I am never going to do a sermon series on ever again. <laughs> Mark my words, he said. This is the book of Revelation. <laughs> Here we are. So when he said that's what we were working on, I, I, I was excited. But we're going to talk about the, uh, we're going to do things a little out of order. I've been told that you were already like told that things are going to come a little out of order here and there. We're going to talk about Thyatira, the letter to Thyatira today. Tita Tira. Say Tita Tita. That's how you would have said it in their world. The letter to Tita Tira. Um, one of my favorite parts of the study of Revelation is this. I do this talk often when I travel around, so I'm excited that I get to do it here with you today. I want to start with this idea here. I want to ask you, where does the power lie? Truth or word, truth or word. Don't answer that out loud, think about it. Where does the power lie? Is the power in truth or is the power in word? See, as Westerners, we have a typical tendency to believe that the power is in the abstract truth. That word is essentially a vehicle. It's the conduit. It's the thing that gets truth to us or enables us to engage with truth. But the power is in truth. I don't necessarily want to say that there's no power in truth at all. But the Eastern world of the Bible believes that there's power in word. 
that if you were to ask them to pick between the two, they would not pick truth. Not that they have to pick, but if they were, they would pick word. Abraham Joshua Heschel is known for saying that words create worlds. A, our world. And God said, let there be light, and there was. Words create worlds. Our words create worlds. Uh, You all know the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, which is the most ridiculous thing we've ever taught anybody. Because we all know how crazy and untrue that is, right? Because we all walk around with wounds that have been created by words. In fact, if you want to prove the Jewish point, by the way, side note, I'm ethnically Jewish. That's why I'm wearing these weird things off my clothes. Can we get that off the table now? (laughs) They're like, why does he have strings hanging from his belt? So this is my tallit. So I'm bringing, I'm bringing conversation from a Jewish perspective this morning. If you want to prove this Jewish perspective in terms of words or truth, consider this. You have been wounded by words that you even know logically are not true. Am I right? You even know people have said things. People have maybe it was a teacher or a parent or somebody else in your life that said something to you that wounded you. And you know intellectually, you know logically that those words are not true and yet they still have power to hurt you. So there is power in word. Here's a passage that I love to go to for this. Passage says this from Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. And then this passage that we we love really well. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What's so interesting about this is we usually quote that completely out of context. It's kind of a side note this morning. This is bonus material. But, but we have this, we, always, we love to use this phrase whenever we're talking about something that like doesn't make kind of any sense. It's kind of counterintuitive. We kind of love to, to quote this verse like, for my thoughts are your thoughts. God's ways are higher than our ways. But there's a context to this passage where, where God says, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and I'll forgive them because I am not like you. Like my ways are more gracious, more merciful, more redemptive, more restorative. God in Isaiah says, I, I, I dare you, let the wicked turn around and I will pardon them. For I My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. But then this next part of the passage that goes like this, as the rain and the snow, it's one of my favorite passages, falls from the heavens and does not return to it without watering the earth, causing it to bud and to flourish, providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So my word goes forth from my mouth, declares the Lord. It will not return to me empty. It will always accomplish the purpose and the desire for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, God says, my words never return empty. My words never fail, God says. Marty Solomon's words fail all the time. 
Your words can fail. Your words can go out and come back empty often. Can I get an amen? Yeah. This this goes for everybody but the Lord. This goes for our favorite leaders or our talk show hosts or whatever. Their words, they can be brilliant. They can be stirring. They can be powerful. Their words can create worlds too. And yet none of them are like God's words which go forth and never come back to God, return to God, void or empty. Words are powerful. So let me, let me talk about Thyatira in order to draw this out. But before we get into Thyatira, let's talk about some textual background, can we? Textual background. You're gonna wonder what this has to do with the book of Revelation, and I'm just gonna tell you to hold on because we'll get there. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Remember this guy by the name of Solomon? Yeah? Good name, by the way. Great name. <laughs> Fantastic. But oh, Shlomo builds a temple. And he, he builds a temple by conscripting labor, by the way. What's another word for conscripted labor? Glad you're tracking, Denver. Okay. Okay, so, so conscripted labor is slaves. So Solomon is building a temple to the God who rescued slaves from Egypt using slave labor. This is not good. This is backwards. He doesn't even, he conscripts labor. He doesn't even, he gets these, the labor that he uses. He imports the bronze smithing and the stone masonry from Phoenicia. Now, if you know anything about the first temple called the tabernacle built in the book of Exodus, if you know anything about that, who built that? Phoenicians? No, not a trick question. Who built that? The Israelites in the desert. God's people built God's temple. Feels like a good idea. Solomon is building this temple with conscripted labor and importing the specialty work from foreigners. In order to pay the Phoenicians for the work they do on the temple, Solomon gives Huram 20 towns in the Galilee as payment. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, that feels like a bad idea too, good job. He's giving a foreign pagan Phoenician king real estate and presence in the land of Israel. Now, Phoenicia was known in ancient in the, in the land in the world of ancient Israel. Phoenicia was known for their highly evolved idolatry. They were like the cutting edge in Baal worship, which involved everything from child sacrifice to sexual immorality committed with Asherah, the goddess of Asherah, Ashtoreth, Asherah and Asherah poles, this combination of fertility, worship, very pagan. And God gives this king Now, after Solomon dies, the kingdom is split. After Solomon uh, comes a guy by the name of Rehoboam and then Jeroboam. After Jeroboam comes Baasha. Say Baasha. After Baasha comes Elah. Say Elah. After Elah comes Zimri. Say Zimri. After Zimri comes Omri. Okay, now Omri is a king that's talked about outside the Bible in extra biblical history, talked about more than almost any ancient Israelite Judean king that we have on record. He was a king of the northern kingdom of Israel. In your Bible, he gets two paragraphs, Omri. In biblical history, they write about him all over the place because this guy was a prolific diplomat. 
He was building treaties and he was striking deals and he was making sure that everybody was going to help Israel. One of his biggest deals was with the land of Phoenicia. When Omri, and you wanted Phoenicia. Phoenicia was the, the coastal kingdom on the north. Philistia, the Philistines, were the coastal kingdom on the south. You wanted alliances with these coastal, because of the commerce, because of the economic, because of the political power that it would hold, because of the defensive stability. You wanted these relationships. Well, Omri dies and everybody panics. What if we lose our relationship with Phoenicia? So they take Omri's son, you may know him, his name is Ahab, and they marry him, listen, to the high priestess of Asherah worship in Phoenicia to solidify the political relationship, arrangement. Her name is Jezebel. So Ahab, this is the textual background to the relationship between Israel and Phoenicia, Ahab and Jezebel, and the whole story of Elijah, which we're not gonna talk about because we're talking about Thyatira, right, Marty? Good job, okay. So this relationship that's solidified with Phoenicia basically imports idolatry into the northern kingdom of Israel. And you read about this all the time, and you're like, oh, those stupid Israelites, I can't believe they're engaging in all this idolatry. But now you have the historical context behind why this idolatry shows up in the first place. Okay, let's put the pause in that. Let's put this over here on our mental shelf and let's go back to Thyatira. You're like, this guy's a hot mess. Who invited him to come speak? (laughs) All right, so Thyatira in the book of Revelation, first century, so now we're like, you know, 700, 800 years later, 600 years, whatever, later, we're later. Thyatira in the book of Revelation. Of the seven churches in Revelation, it is by far the smallest. It's a population of 30 or 40,000 people. It's a military outpost. We might think of it like, you know, if there's a, um, what's the, what's the um, uh, military base down in, in the springs? Uh, fort. There you go. You might think of it in that way. Thyatira is this military outpost. Small, it's blue collar. Blue-collar workers. It's not like Smyrna. Smyrna's white-collar. Pillars, marble. We're educated. I don't know what Parker's like. I have no idea which one you are. <laughs> but, but Thyatira is blue-collar. Plumbers. Hard workers. Mechanics. This is who they are. We found a guild registry. Uh, Thyatira is like, half, it's like a quarter of a city block. It's the smallest little piece of ruins because there's a modern day city sitting on what used to be ancient Thyatira. So we haven't found a lot, but one of the things we did find in Christian archeological world is their guild registry for Thyatira. Their guild registry is one of the longest we've ever found, okay? What that means is, what's a guild? A guild is like a combination of a labor union and a college fraternity. Put the two together and you get, a, you get a guild. You got the brotherhood and the party of the fraternity. You have the commitment to vocation and the, the, the patronage system of a labor union. You put the two together, you have, they would have had monthly celebrations, usually around the new moon, where your guild, if you're, let's say you're a blacksmith, and you get together with your blacksmith's guild, 
And your guild has a God. Your city has a God. Your guild has a God. Your family has a God. Rome has a God. There's all these gods, right? And your guild has a God. Let's say the blacksmith's God is Zeus. And you get together once a month on the new moon to have a guild feast. And you get together at these guild feasts and you worship Zeus. And as far as we've been able to tell, almost all the guild feasts, almost all of them involved raw meat and wine, the consumption of wine and raw meat. You're getting the presence of the God in you with the raw meat with the blood still in it. And then you're drinking wine and getting drunk. At some point, the rest of your family goes home for the rest of the night, and the party becomes this debauchery-filled sexual immorality. You, You laid on things called guild couches. They were called kleines. Say kleine. We get the word recliner from kleine, okay? Kleine, it's, it's, where you, it's where you lay back, it's where you recline on these guild couches and you eat your raw meat, you get drunk on your wine and you engage in the, can Jesus followers in the first century be a part of a guild? This is tricky, isn't it? If you decide not to be a part of the guild, it's gonna be very hard to, to do business in anywhere, especially a place like Thyatira. Here's a list of the guilds we found. Leather workers, wool workers, weavers, bakers, tailors, dyers, candle makers, cobblers, potters. I love the candle makers guild. <laughs> That's awesome. I would love to know more about the candle makers guild. That's great. Blacksmiths, bronze. Somewhere in here, there's a candle maker in the room going like, hey, what are you talking about? Candle makers, awesome. And it is. Slave merchants, purple dyers, stone cutters. Thyatira was a hard-working, blue-collar town. Are we, are, we, are we preaching? You got it? Okay, good. Do I have a timer here? Is it going down? Excellent. Wonderful. All right, so let's go on to this next slide here. So yeah, huge guild registry for the town sides, potters, stonecutters, blacksmiths, tailors, bronzemiths, purple dye cut. The main export in Thyatira, there were two main exports. One of them was purple dye. And it had a name that's escaping me right now. But you might remember in the book of Acts, they meet a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple cloth from the city of Tiratira. It fits. It's one of their main exports in Thyatira. The other export that they're known for is what's called kalkalabanas. Say kalkalabanas. We say burnished bronze. It's how they made mirrors and many other things in their culture. They didn't have the glass technology to make mirrors like we have today. So they would take bronze, they would take this burnished bronze and polish it and polish it and polish it. And it almost had, you could see your reflection pretty well-ish. That was burnished bronze. Another thing we know about Thyatira is they had what was called a sibyl there. What's a sibyl? A sibyl is like a minor league oracle. What's an oracle? You go to an oracle to get an oracle from an oracle. Does that make sense? (laughs) There were four oracles in the Roman world, Delphi, Kleros, Didyma, and the one I always forget, shoot, I can't remember, but there were four of them. I take our students to, I think Aaron does too, takes students to Didyma, one of the oracles in Didyma. There was only four of them. So wherever you were at in the Roman Empire, if you needed to go get a message from the gods, that was an oracle. You go to an oracle, the place, to get an oracle of the message from the oracle, the message giver. You go to an oracle to get an oracle from an oracle. Okay? If you've watched the movie 300, I can't recommend the scene. 
But at the top of the temple there, he goes to ask the oracle if he should go to war, and she says no, and she's been bought off, and this is oracle. That's the world of oracle in the Roman culture. Let's say you had a question, and you didn't want to take all the time to go to an oracle. It's not that big of a deal. It's kind of a big deal, but not that big of a deal. You could go to what was called a sibyl. I can go to a minor league oracle, right? Triple A ball. And I can ask the Sybil, and it's not going to be nearly as involved, nearly as expensive, nearly as time-consuming, but I can still go ask my question and try to get a message from the gods. There was a Sybil in Thyatira. Her name historically was Sambate, and Sambate was a Jewish prophetess. And now if you're thinking to yourself, that doesn't work, correct. Leviticus was very clear about seers, witchcraft, They didn't have oracles in the days of Leviticus, but it definitely fits. She should not be a Sybil, but she's this Jewish woman who is getting messages from the underworld, from the god Apollo, and that's weird. The city god for Thyatira was Zeus's son named Tyrimnos. Say Tyrimnos. You know Tyrimnos. He's like, you have to really be familiar with your pantheon knowledge to know about Tyrimnos. He's like the most obscure, and historians all their life are like, why did they choose Tyrimnos? Why not choose Zeus? Why choose the son of Zeus? And one of the best theories that they have is that Thyatira was so blue collar, so underdog, that they said, we're not even going to take Zeus, we're going to take the underdog of Zeus, Tyrimnos. That's our guy. Now, when it came to Roman worship... They didn't, during the Domitian, the reign of Domitian, they didn't worship Domitian directly. They worshiped Domitian's son who passed away before he turned two years old. He had, a, he had a son that died very young and they didn't worship Domitian. They worshiped Domitian's son as a way to honor, probably in this mirroring way to the way that they worshiped Zeus, Zeus's son, Tyrimnos. All right, let's look at the letter to Thyatira. And as I read this letter, I want you to be thinking about culture. I want you to look for culture, Thyatira culture, as we read the letter. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. And I want to go back to that last slide, and I want to look at this letter, and I want us to look for culture. Did you find, did you hear any culture as we read that letter? I hope the answer is yes. Watch. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. What's the culture? Burnished bronze. It's their main export. Blacksmithing. What do, they, what do you do with blacksmithing? It's blazing fire. It's all the furnaces for blacksmithing. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first. Blue collar, hard workers, persevering. You guys tracking with me? Got real quiet in here all of a sudden. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. The Sambati, the Sibyl. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Guild feasts. See, you guys are warming up. Good work. Guild feasts. Do you see, do you see what's happening here? I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed. Here's what you don't know. The Greek word there is kleine. You could have literally translated it. I will cast her on a guild couch of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. More guild feast. I will strike her children dead. Domitian's child. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will repay each of you according to your deeds. Blue collar hard workers. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, the Sibyl, the messages from the underworld, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery just as I've received authority from my father. Potter's Guild, Blacksmith's Guild, I will also give that one the morning star. Oh, I didn't tell you. Um, you're like, I don't know that one because I didn't tell you about it. Thyatira minted coins, and on the coin, it shows Domitian holding the sun that passed away, and in the sun's hand are seven stars. Seven stars in the Roman world is the Roman way of saying, I can get you where you want to go. I hold the power of life and death and truth and of getting you everywhere to heaven. Okay, so that's the seven stars. So the sun is holding seven stars. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is going on throughout the entire book of Revelation. All the pieces are coming directly from culture. Guys, that letter we just looked at, every single sentence, every sentence came straight out of culture. And people who read it from Thyatira were like, oh, that's clever. That's super clever. John, <laughs> I, like, I like what you did there, John. I see what you did. I saw what you were doing. See, Revelation is not this crazy, confusing, cryptic. They read it and they're like, I have no idea what John's trying to tell us. They got this letter from Pastor John and they were like, oh, that's good. I like that. Jezebel and the Sibyl and the Sambati and the burnished bronze. That's a great grab. It all made wonderful cultural sense. But where is John getting his material? You, you say, you just told us, Marty, culture. Okay, yes, but he's also getting his material from somewhere else. I want to go back to this letter, and I want to look at this one more time. 
And this time I want you to think about text. Think about scripture, okay? So don't think about culture, think about Bible. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches." Did you hear any scripture in there? A little bit trickier, right? Us Christians, and we're always like, Bible, 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 Bible. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible, Bible says, says. And we really don't know the Bible as well as we act like we do, right? Okay, so now let's get into this. Let's get into this. Let's go back one more time. Last time through the letter, let's find text. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the son of God. We're going to put a pin in that one. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Whose eyes are like, oh, by the way, culture. Ah, I'm so sorry, you guys. Did you know this is the only letter that mentions the son of God? Not Ephesus, not Pergamum, not Laodicea. This is the only letter that mentions the son of God. Isn't that crazy? Why here? Because they worshiped the son of Zeus. I'm telling you, this whole stuff is awesome. Anyway, okay, put, put a pin in the son of God thing, okay? Uh, blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. Come on, Bible nerds. Daniel, good job, man. It's because Aaron's your pastor, dang it. You guys are so good with the Bible. Daniel, I know your deeds your, and faith, your service and perseverance. By the way, what's the whole theme of the book of Daniel? Perseverance. Persevering in the midst of a culture that's trying to crush you. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Not a trick question. Jezebel, good job. <laughs> Who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Who was Jezebel in the Old Testament? The, the high priestess of Asherah worship, sexual immorality and idolatry. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Think of the contest on Mount Carmel. She had opportunity to repent. How did she respond? So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. How did Jezebel die? She was thrown out a window. I will throw her on a cline of suffering. She was thrown from a window. Unless she repents for ways. I will strike her children dead. What happened to all of Jezebel's children? They were all struck dead. And the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will pay each of you according to your deeds. Where does that come from? A little tricky. Could be a Psalms, could be Jeremiah. Could be, could be either one. We'll look at which one I think is the right one. But that's a direct quote from either. 
Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold on to her teaching have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. That one should be easy. It's quoted in your Bible with a footnote. Where is that one coming from? Psalm 2. Okay, Psalm 2. I will also give that one the morning star. Everybody wants to think the morning star Lucifer. Incorrect, that's a bad translation and application. Morning star is gonna be connected to Numbers 24. I see a star rising out of Jacob, Numbers 24. That rising star is the same Hebrew expression that's gonna be related to morning star, a a rising star, a morning star, a star rising in the morning, that's Numbers. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so John just wrote a letter that every single sentence was brilliantly commenting on culture, right? And that was clever. That would have been clever enough. We all would have been like, wow, John's super clever. The Bible's inspired. This is incredible. John also got every single sentence of his letter from where? The text. Like, it takes a while for that to sink in. How do you do that? How do you get, how do you like, how are you clever with the newspaper and and the cool stuff that's happening in current events and you craft this letter, but you actually got all your material from the Bible the whole time because you knew your Bible so well that you did like a whole SNL skit (laughs) with Bible content. That's crazy. It's almost like he had help. But wait, there's more. (laughs) We said Psalm 2, right? Psalm 2 was directly quoted, right? These are, I think most of these passages are in your notes, by the way. They're not on the screen because I didn't want to give anything away. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them and he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. And he said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter and shatter them like pottery. That's the part that's quoted. But this is the son of God psalm. This was the son of God letter. But wait, who is Psalm 2 written about? Who's writing the psalm? Take a guess. David. Who's David's son? Solomon. Wait a minute. Hold on. What was the next thing that was quoted? Um, Let's see. Uh, Oh, Jezebel. But who was ultimately responsible for having Jezebel in the land? Solomon was. But wait, what did Jezebel bring into the land? Asherah poles, sexual morality, and idolatry. What was the other passage that was quoted? Jeremiah 17, you say? Hold on. 
The sin of Judah is inscribed with an iron, uh, an iron stylus, with a diamond point. It is engraved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their Asherah poles. <laughs> Hold on. Wait, because of their idolatry, where do they end up? Babylon where they were told to persevere in which book? Daniel. Wait, 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 wait. What was the last passage that was quoted? Numbers 24? I see a star rising. Who uttered those words in Numbers 24? I see a star rising. Who's talking? Balaam. What was Balaam responsible for? We're not told directly. We're told 10 chapters later in the book of Numbers. Maybe it's less than that. It might be six chapters later. We're told later in the book of Numbers, it was Balaam's idea to tell Balak to send the Moabite women into their camp so that the Israelites would commit sexual immorality and worship the idols of Moab. What's the condemnation of the church of Thyatira? Sexual immorality and idolatry. Guys, it's not just that John knows his cultural context and got his material out of the Bible. He chose material in order that preached the lesson and the sermon underneath it all. Yeah, somebody said, wow. I don't even care if one person gets it this morning. This is what Revelation is doing on every single page. It's brilliant. It's brilliant the way that they engage with this. Now, and listen, do the Greeks, do the Gentiles even catch any of that? Here's my point. Do the Gentiles catch any of that? 80% of John's audience is Gentile and they don't even catch it. They just catch the cultural references and they're like, oh, that's clever. And the Jew, Siri's trying to tell me something. And the Jew is sitting next to them going, oh, you have no idea. We got we to gotta do lunch after church because I got to tell you all about what, he, what John just did. It seems clever. It's beyond clever. So why did John do it if most of his audience didn't even understand it? Because God's words don't return void. John says, I could write a brilliant letter about Thyatira's sin, or I could turn God's words loose, buried in a treasure, but God's words will do more than my words ever will, no matter how clever or crafty or beautiful or truthful. What are one of the lessons we can learn from Revelation? One of them is the power of text to context. And so I want to move towards our time of implications, and so I think the servers are going to get ready to hand out the uh, elements for communion and the Lord's Supper. I'm going to invite them to do that now. But here are, here are some of my implications. To be a Talmud, that, that's, that's a word that means disciple. To be a disciple in Jesus' day meant to have a working familiarity with the text. The apostles and the earliest followers of Jesus believed that God's word had unique power 
and they worked to put, put the text into context. How well does John have to know his Bible to do what he did in that letter? <sighs> and he doesn't have BibleGateway.com. Like seriously, he doesn't even have copies of the Bible in his hands. He has to have the Bible, uh, BibleGateway.com is up here. How well do the apostles have to know their Bible to take text and end up putting it into context? How long does John have to live around a place like Thyatira before he can have the insight? How hard did he work on this? Like, I realized that maybe that he just sat down and the Holy Spirit just inspired him and it just came out. But assuming that there was more of a partnership than that, how long does John work on this in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? How long does he take this text that's in his and take text and put it into context? And so maybe here's my implication for us today. Do you have the text in you? And this is not about quantity. Please don't turn this into, I'll never know that much of the Bible. I'll never be that good. Please do not sit and sing a song this morning like the miracles that God can do and how dare I say what God can't do and then sit there and be like, well, I can't do this. <laughs> Baloney. There's a really non-kosher non expla explanation right there. <laughs> Baloney. Hogwash. How's that for a Gentile expression? How will we ever, do you have his text in you? How will we ever put his words to work? Empowering our words. Like I know that we've been taught as evangelicals that we know everything about everything about everything and we are the great gatekeepers of truth in the world. And we are so smart and so brilliant and we've taken so many apologetics classes and we are ready to give an explanation for the hope. Your explanation will be Impotent compared to the power of God's words turned loose in the world. So how, 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 how much of God's, what if, you, what if you memorized, and you're like, I can't do this, I've tried to memorize, yada, yada. what if you just memorized one verse a week for the next year? Just one verse. Pick the short ones. <laughs> Jesus wept, start this week. <laughs> Got it. In all seriousness, what if, you, what if you memorized one verse a week? I'll give you two weeks to screw up. That's 50 verses this year. Do not tell me that 50 verses this year would not radically change your heart, your life, and then what would God be able to do when those verses come out of you and you put his text into context? When all of a sudden his Bible is coming out in the middle of Parker, Colorado. Come on. You see what I mean? See, this is one of the things that we can learn from Revelation. If we are not prepared, how will his word ever come out of us if we're not prepared with his word in us? So we have some things to think about and reflect on as you hold the elements this morning. I think of that night when Jesus had that Seder meal with his disciples, well, you know one of the things he used? Words. He used words. And he was God, and yet he still used his own book. He quoted God's words all throughout that meal that night. 
He talked about how he was the lamb. He referred to the blood of the covenant. He let the Seder meal and God's words and God text speak into the context of that evening and what was happening. And he invites us to do the same thing here today. These things are connected. The table, the Lord's Supper. Paul tells us, remember, we do this. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Words. Not just our words, his words that never come back void. Let's take a moment to reflect on what we're doing here, maybe even with words this morning, and we'll take those elements here in just a moment. That night, as he supped with his disciples, Jesus took a piece of bread and he broke it. He passed it to his disciples. He said, this is my body given for you. The word wrapped in flesh. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. And later in the meal, he took a cup. He said, this is the blood of the covenant that I make with you. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember this mission, this thing that God has called us to in the world. Let's remember Jesus. Father God, we, um, we know that this thing you've called us to is a partnership. A partnership that needs power, And luckily, that power isn't going to come from us. That's not what we need. We need your power. It's going to come in the form of the Holy Spirit. Your Spirit's going to empower, invade, flood into, overflow out of. It's your Holy Spirit that's going to empower anything that we do as we partner with you. And yet we've been told that that... That power, that sword of the spirit, Ephesians chapter six. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we know that your Holy Spirit's gonna work in so many ways, but one of the ways, one of the ways that your Holy Spirit's gonna work in our life is through the power of your word. So may we be partners in your word. May we be ambassadors of your word. May we be vessels Little, little pieces of conduit for your word so that your power, your words that never return void, would we take your words and put them in Parker, Colorado in ways that the people of Parker wouldn't even know. They wouldn't even know that the words of God have gone out. They wouldn't even know that the words of God have hit the table, but they have, and they have the power to do things that our words simply cannot. So God, we love you. We want to learn how to love you in this. So help us. We pray this in Jesus' resurrected name, amen.